Ernie Davenport's career plan was simple. First of all, I, <clears throat> I didn't know whether I could compete, so that was the first thing to, to learn. He ultimately got his boss's 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 job. I had, I had to learn what CEOs are really supposed to do, and then I had to learn how to do them. And led Eastman through one of the most pivotal moments in its 100-year history. Well, it was just something that I felt strongly about if we wanted to really survive this kind of company that we had been. This is the Voices of Eastman podcast, a celebration of the success, values, and people that have shaped Eastman's 100-year history. In this episode, you'll meet the man who navigated Eastman's spinoff from Kodak in 1993. Yes, you may know how this story ends, but you may not have heard how it started. Uh, yeah, I was anxious, but I'm a pretty optimistic guy and was willing to take some risk. As it turns out, that risk tolerance set Ernie Davenport apart from other chemical engineers, but it was a trait he had to cultivate over time. For college, he stayed close to home, earning his degree from Mississippi State and joining Eastman in 1960. Well, it was a pretty good year for uh, engineers graduating to get jobs. Ernie ventured out of state to work at Eastman's manufacturing site in Kingsport, Tennessee, in spite of a chilly reception during his interview. It was 18 inches of snow on the ground, and I thought, well, it might be fun to live here for a few years. So I accepted the job. And Kind of the rest is history. Ernie began to rise through the ranks of Eastman's fibers business, trading addresses between Tennessee and South Carolina. My first goal was uh, to get the job. My second goal was to keep the job. And later, my third goal was to get my boss's job. He did just that. Only, he didn't stop. In spite of the risk that comes with moving up, he kept going until he had taken all the boss jobs Eastman had. In 1989, he became president of Eastman, at the time a division of Kodak. Of course, Kodak had no real aspirations to grow the chemical business because their mission, and rightly so in life, was to grow the imaging business. In Ernie's estimation, Kodak was unwilling to put their cash cow at risk. But Ernie knew in his heart he had a company that was ready to race into the future, just like its founder had always envisioned. It just seemed like that the fit that had always been there when George Eastman first started, the company was no longer there. Ernie faced a choice, maybe the biggest choice of his career. He could stay comfortable and keep the status quo. Kodak was a great parent. They allowed us to operate fairly autonomously and uh, didn't try to uh, tell us how to manage the chemical business. Or risk fighting for his vision by separating from Kodak. So we began to talk uh, to the board, uh, talk to the management at Kodak about how we might structure ourselves relative to Kodak. And that was truthfully not received wholeheartedly by Kodak or the board. Not only did he face opposition from the board, but also uncertainty from the communities where Eastman had been a fixture for decades. A lot of anxiety, and not only among employees, there was a lot of anxiety in the community as a whole. In Longview and Kingsport, business in Kingsport, I remember visiting a car dealer and asking him how business was. He said, well, until Eastman decides what they're going to do, we, we're not going to be able to sell any cars. The pressure was on, and the stakes for Ernie and Eastman were never higher because he knew spinning off would mean answering to a new set of owners. 
But the biggest thing that changed was we took on a new stakeholder that we had not <clears throat> dealt with before, and that was Wall Street. And as if things weren't interesting enough, a third, more uncertain option lingered in the air. Kodak could sell its chemicals business to another company, potentially putting Ernie out of a job and placing Eastman's fate in someone else's hands. And I was anxious about that as to whether or not there would be a company that could step up and do that. For Ernie, it came down to this. He wanted to preserve the way of life at Eastman he had known for three decades, a culture that had helped him grow from a new engineer, unsure if he could compete, to a bold leader ready to break from one of America's largest companies. Well, it was just something that I felt strongly about if we wanted to really survive as the kind of company that we had been. Ernie and his team took a risk and made Kodak an audacious offer, and it was a deal they couldn't refuse. Well, Kodak had just uh, gone into debt for the first time, kind of in their history, and the board of directors of Kodak were uh, kind of intent on paying that debt down, so we were able to get a bridge loan and give Kodak several billion dollars, and in exchange for that, they agreed to spin us off in a tax-free distribution. Ernie's instincts had paid off. Six months later, he was the CEO of Eastman Chemical Company, the 10th largest chemical company in the U.S. I had, I had to learn what CEOs are really supposed to do, and then I had to learn how to do them. Ernie quickly figured out his first priority, taking a company that was big in America and making it bigger around the world. I and others in the chemical division uh, saw uh, global growth as something that was going to be absolutely imperative if we were to survive as a uh, major chemical company. And growth has largely been Eastman's story since the spinoff from Kodak. Through innovations and acquisitions, it is now the global company Ernie imagined it could be. We knew we had to, and because if we didn't do it, then some, someone else, a competitor, would do it and take our place. The spinoff also proved to be a pivotal moment for Kodak. Without the cash from chemicals, the photographic giants struggled amid fierce competition and the rise of digital photography. In 2012, the same year Eastman made its biggest acquisition ever, Kodak filed for bankruptcy. The gap between Eastman's fortunes and that of its former corporate parent proved Ernie's risky move had paid off. Yeah, you know, some sometimes you get lucky, as I've told people, and things work out better than you think. But it's, I think it was obviously the right thing to do, but not something <clears throat> that we did because we thought Kodak was going to run into financial problems. Today, Ernie enjoys retirement at his home in the Southeast United States and in the company of his four grandchildren. Even though his life is a bit more predictable than it was, he hasn't lost sight of the adventure. There's no such thing as a risk-free life, you know, but I'm staying safe so far, yeah. He's had time to reflect on his time at Eastman, how it changed his life and the lives of many others. Being able to maintain a company and grow a, grow a company as an independent company that really, uh, you know, provides uh, earnings and, and uh, a way of life for all of its employees and their families probably is the biggest uh, uh, consolation that I take from doing all the work that we did.
The Voices of Eastman podcast is written and produced by the Eastman Corporate Communications team. To learn more about Eastman, visit Eastman.com.